0: I implore leaders to go, let's kill the 60-minute meeting because then you have some time to shoot off that email, to get there so that you're on time. Kill
1: the 60-minute, 30-minute meetings. Welcome to Building Teams with Matt Nunn. As a coach and as a leader of 150 people, Matt loves to build and lead strong teams. From CEOs to professional athletes, join him as he has honest, candid conversations about how to cultivate strong teams. Proudly presented by Nunn Media, Australia's largest media buying agency. Hello, and thanks for joining me. I'm Matt Nunn. On today's episode of Building Teams, I'll be speaking with Paul Taylor. Paul is a former British Royal Navy Aircrew Officer, who is now a neuroscientist, exercise physiologist and nutritionalist. You'll often find Paul running resilience and leadership workshops for some of Australia's biggest corporations, as well as delivering keynote speeches. And if he's not busy enough, he's also doing a PhD in psychology, focusing on resilience training. Welcome, Paul. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Quite a resume. British Armed Forces Aircrew Officer, Neuroscientist, Exercise Physiologist, I think that's right, uh, Nutritionalist, and also doing a PhD in Psychology, focusing on resilience. There's quite a bit of education going through sort of all those uh, announcements.
0: <laughs> I need to keep myself out of mischief, so that's really what that's for. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on.
1: Am I right saying Professor Paul Taylor? No, I, I'm an
0: ex-professor. So our mutual friend, Johnny Locco, still calls me the professor. I was an <laughs> adjunct professor when I, at University of San Francisco when I met Johnny Loco. And despite me having told him numerous times that I'm no longer a professor, he goes, I don't care. You'll always be the professor
1: to me. So he calls me <laughs> the prof. Excellent. I might just start just your upbringing where were you born, your education, your family life?
0: I was brought up in Belfast in the 1970s uh, from a mixed marriage, which has a different connotation in Belfast than yes. everywhere else. So my dad was a Catholic, my mom was a Protestant. It was pretty taboo for Catholics and Protestants to marry then. So we were brought up as Catholics, but always lived in Protestant neighborhoods, which is reasonably resilience building over time when you go to school in a Catholic uniform through a Protestant yes. neighborhood. (laughs) So, but despite that, I had a, a, you know, I had a a great upbringing and then, you know, went to school in Belfast, then went to university, went to Queens University in Belfast. And then I joined the military after I'd done done a degree. And then I went and did a master's degree in sports science. And then I joined the military after that, because I was after a bit of adventure
1: any active duty
0: no uh, luckily my frontline time so mine was actually doing helicopter search and rescue in scotland it's just potluck you know what conflicts are on whenever you're in i did eight years and there was no major conflicts that the brits were actually involved in so i got quite fortunate from that perspective.
1: I'd like to hear a little bit about your military training and your time in the British Army and how that sort of influenced your leadership style.
0: I did a, a year's officer training so in, in in the British Navy, which is recognized as some of the best in the world. And um, you know, they've been doing it longer pretty much than everybody else. So a year of that officer training is quite you know, it's quite a deep dive into things and learnt an, an absolute bucket load uh, from that, which I kind of still use today whenever I'm talking to corporates. But I think the big thing that stuck with me, the British military definition of leadership, which is influencing people, by providing purpose, direction, and motivation. And it goes on to say to achieve the mission and improve the organization as a whole. And that whole idea that leadership is about people. So in the military, they've got a a very different view. Leadership is exclusively about people. Leadership and management are completely separate. So there's a pretty famous quote uh, by Rear Admiral Grace Murray Walker that says, you manage things, you lead people. And I tend to find that in the corporate world, those two terms are used interchangeably. So when I talk about leadership, I purely talk about people and, and influencing people.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting view. Probably not universal at all, is it? Certainly not universal in the corporate world. And, and, and what often
0: happens in the corporate world is that people who are very good at their job, they're very good technically, and they may be good managers, good with systems and processes, but and they get um, in a leadership role, and they're they're, not, they're often not good at it because they're not good at the people stuff or they haven't been trained enough in the people stuff.
1: So what did your military experience teach you about being a strong team member? I think it, it's everything when you're in the
0: military. You know, it, it, was all, it was drummed into us that a chain will break at its weakest link and that that you know that whole idea about mateship was pretty pretty critical and um, to it you know is l- looking after your oppo as we'd say, and you know that whole idea that everybody pitches in. Everybody pitches in. I think there's much more accountability in the military than I have seen in in corporate organisations. And um, often accountability starts with self, you know that that is really drilled into you. And then it's peer to peer accountability. So I think that that whole idea that everybody is pitching in and that you know, you've all got, you're all members of one team. And it was really reinforced to me then when I ended up flying in helicopters, where you have a team of four people whose lives depend on each other. Um, you know, it's pretty dangerous stuff. I did um, a few years of helicopter search and rescue, helicopter anti-submarine warfare initially. So often you're 100 kilometers from the ship in rough seas hunting for submarines and somebody screws up. Four people are dead, Uh, you know, same when it comes to helicopter search and rescue. So, you know, when you're going to work on a daily basis and you know that your lives depend on each other, it kind of sharpens the focus a little bit about how much you need to be a team player.
1: Puts a new definition to it.
0: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: During your combat survival training, I know you must have been put through a lot of intense physical and mental challenges in groups. And I'm sure it gave you some great insight into team sort of dynamics. Can you share any advice about how to motivate team members to work towards a sort of common goal?
0: Look, there's a number of things I think that are are, are really important. Uh, actually, one thing, I'll just do a little tangent and come back to the question. One of the biggest things I learned on Combat Survival Course was never to judge anybody until you've been through the absolute ringer with them, right? Until you've seen into their souls, until you've seen them uh, under severe pressure, and um, because that that ten days of combat survival and resistance to interrogation training is is real pressure. You know they throw every imaginable stress at you. You're thrashed every day physically, so you know you're completely spent physically. The only food they gave us in ten days was a chicken between four people, and it was alive when we got it. We were in winter in the UK. We had no sleeping bags. We just had a Gore-Tex bivy bag, which keeps you dry but no heat. So you're for freezing your ass off every night you know falling asleep because you're so knackered and waking up because you're freezing cold you know walking hundreds and hundreds of kilometers o- over those 10 days you know fat la- second five days being hunted by a hunter force when you think it's all over you get introduced to the shock of capture and then interrogated you know you're in stress positions the whole time you got white noise you're hooded you know all that sensory deprivation that goes on and then you know there's the nice interrogations on top of that. And it was interesting, you know, some people who I thought that would do really well, really struggled, and, and, and another guy who I thought, this guy's gonna be done in a couple of days, actually breezed through it. And that was my whole thing, was just never judge anybody until you've been through the ringer with them. To kind of come back to your question about motivating team members, um, and for me, it's really about purpose. And that communicating of purpose and how what you're asking someone to do, how it connects to the purpose of the mission or the organisation or the goal or whatever it is, because when people understand why their work is important and how their work contributes to the overall organisation of or that goal, and um, then they they tend to be more involved in it. They tend to be um, to to have more engagement. and and are more willing to go through stressful stuff. So I think that was pretty key. But then another thing that has really come out it's about the, the importance of autonomy, and there's a lot written on this. Um, you know, the opposite of autonomy is being controlled or micromanaged. So, you know, if you give somebody autonomy, it's like, Here, Matt, here's what I need you to do, um, and you just crack on and, and do it. You know, you're a big boy, you crack on and do it, and and you know, come to me if you're struggling or if you need any resources. It's hugely important that people have autonomy in their role, but autonomy has a bedfellow of accountability. So you shouldn't give people autonomy without accountability. So Matt, here's what I expect, here's the output that I expect, and here's when I expect it from you. Now you crack on and do what you want. Have you got any questions? Have you got any resources that you need? You know, that sort of stuff. I think that coupling of autonomy and accountability, I think is hugely important.
1: So from your point of view, high-performing teams, what? would you regard as being sort of the essential building blocks?
0: Look, I I actually use, and I'm trained in um, Pat Lencioni's model, which I really, really like. So he has, um, it's a kind of a triangle, and it's a bit like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So right at the bottom of the triangle is trust, and it's a deeper vulnerability-based trust, I think, and I think that's really, really key. I've totally bought into that because when you trust somebody if me and you really do trust each other then we can engage in productive conflict without fear of reprisals and 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 that's the next level on that is is about productive conflict um you know teams that are too nice to each other just will not get stuff done right so having that productive conflict where you're passionately debating ideas uh, and and you're playing the ball not playing the individual I think that's really important and the next level on that is is about commitment so that you know when the team comes to a decision that everybody is committed to it and you communicate it like you own it so I see a lot in businesses you know managers or leaders um, whether they say it overtly or it's their body language or their tone, they're kind of saying to their team, oh, yeah, these guys have decided to do that. And, and this stuff spreads like a cancer, right? So the whole thing is when, when there's a decision made, everybody has to commit to it um, like it was your decision. And then it's about accountability, and and in this high performance model, it's about holding yourself to account first and foremost, and then peers holding each other to account, and then the last bit is about collective results. Um, but interestingly, you look at Lencioni's model, which I just went through, and it's a mate of mine, Reg Crawford, who's ex Australian L- Army, ex SAS Lieutenant Colonel in the Australian Army, and 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 he he's trained in this model as well, uh, and he's the one he introduced it to me, and and one day we sat down and 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 pulled it apart a little bit and thought you know there's something missing in this model and and we both agreed that it's built on a foundation of purpose right so the purpose of the organization the purpose of the mission that is really really key that you communicate that and then it's held together by behaviors right and and i'm not i'm not as big a fan of as values I like behaviors where you can call each other out if you're not behaving in that way. I think that that's that's much more solid than hey, here's our values.
1: I guess a lot of people out there that are listening, you know, they've been through a lot of stressful moments possibly in the last couple of years with, you know, covid and jobs and and money and financial pressures. We'd probably regard you as an expert in managing stress. Can you share some advice on how to prepare for difficult conversations or stressful work moments?
0: Look, there's a number of things. One is more about long-term strategy, and that is getting yourself in the best physical and mental shape to be able to handle stress. And and I think this is completely underplayed when people talk about stress management and stuff like that. What, What is abundantly clear? is that people who are more physically fit and who exercise more, and particularly who exercise more intensely, are able to handle more stress, whether that's physical stress or psychological stress, right? So, you know, a lot of people talk about self-care and some people think that, you know, I've had a hard day, so self-care is sitting with a glass of wine, watching Netflix. Um, For me, that's not self-care, that's (laughs) self-indulgence. Self-care is getting yourself into the best shape in order to to prepare yourself for what you're going into. And Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, I'm a big fan of Stoicism, said something along the lines of, um, we must all undergo a hard winter's training and not enter in lightly into those things for which we have not prepared. And he was actually talking about life, right? Yeah, yeah. So for, for me, um, this whole self-care is making sure that you're exercising, so you're training your stress response system. This is what most people don't get, that when you're exercising, it's not just about exercise, it's not just about keeping the weight off, it's not just about your fitness, you're actually making your stress response system more efficient. Right. Um, which is for me, absolutely fundamentally key. Making sure that you have good sleep hygiene as well. Right. Um, because if you if you don't sleep well, your brain is just not going to function the next day. Your stress hormones are higher the next day to start with. There's other hormones that are affected that impact upon your eating behavior and your movement and things like that.
1: And what's a good amount of sleep? So, look, there's a lot of debate about this. The
0: general consensus is that that most adults need at least seven hours of sleep. Uh, there is a very, very small um, percentage of the population who can get away with kind of four or five hours a night and they have genetic mutations that enable them to do that but it's it's we think it's less than one percent right so for more and and people actually they'll adapt right if they're not sleeping well they'll adapt to maybe six or five and a half hours and they'll kind of their body will get through it but it takes an incredible toll on their biology, right? So it seems to be around that seven hours, give or take a little bit, right? So everybody's individual on that. So that's what I would say about the sleep. So, So for me, it's about making sure that you are looking after your vehicle, which is your body and your brain, to, to get it in because you wouldn't go into battle in a tank that you haven't looked after or in a helicopter that you haven't looked after right so you've got to get your vehicle well maintained and then there's there's a number of things um around so if you're talking about difficult conversations there's a really nice model called the sbi model so situation behavior impact that's really good so so matt situation Yesterday in the leadership meeting, we all agreed that we were going to do this. And then I heard you in the kitchen saying to one of your team members, what a lot of bullshit that is, right? So there's the situation and the behavior, right? The impact is I felt that that invalidated us as a leadership team. What do you think we should do about this, right? Oh, and So SBI, and then there's an R, which is resolution. How do you think we should resolve this? Or I propose a resolution. So that SBI model, uh, R is a really good model. And it's great for your kids, right? Rather than telling your kids that they're naughty, like little Johnny, when we went into the supermarket, we had the conversation that you weren't allowed any treats and you had a tantrum in the supermarket, right? Situation, behavior. The impact was that really embarrassed mummy or really embarrassed daddy. And, and, you know, we went back on our agreement. So uh, what do you think we should do about this? Right. It's brilliant for training on your kids. <laughs> so that SBI model, I think for having for particularly for people who don't like conflict, it's a great model. And then, uh, you know, when you're stressed, I, th- I think just some arousal control techniques. So one of the best ways to control your arousal is just breathing. Um, is, and it's basically slowing down your breathing um, and and particularly the breath out. Right. So there's a number of different things. I, I like, you know, you breathe in for three or four and then you breathe out for six or seven. So you have a 10 second breath cycle. So the really slow in it down. Either, either three or four. And slow down, the, particularly the breath out. When you breathe in, you will just nudge your sympathetic nervous system, which is the the kind of fight or flight and stress. And when you breathe out, you're activating the parasympathetic nervous system. That's like the other side of the seesaw, right? Rest, digest, yeah, relax. Yeah. So the long, slow breath in is really, really useful. So just doing that breathing, of focusing, and you know, if you're doing a presentation or something like that. Making sure that you know your content inside out, I think is really key.
1: And gives then, you the confidence, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. That gives you the confidence and then um just doing your breathing to control your arousal. And and a really good technique if you've only or you're just about to go up is something called a physiological sigh, which actually all animals do, and it's the quickest way to grab hold of your nervous system. So it's basically two short breaths in. Um, and then a long breath out, right? So it's like a, right? And okay. you'll see that when I people- I think I have heard that before. <laughs> yeah, and if you're saying, if, you, if people are crying uncontrollably, they'll often go, right? In the middle of it, right? And that's that physiological sigh. Even dogs do a physiological sigh as well. If you've only got a couple of seconds, just doing that physiological sigh
1: is awesome keeping the conversation around workplaces, is there a wellness ritual that business owners, CEOs, managers should consider to increase productivity?
0: For me, they should buy a kettlebell and stick it at everybody's desk, right? I have a kettlebell right here, as you can see beside my desk, and it's a little trigger. So every half hour or so, I get up and do some kettlebell swings. And what that's doing, we need to examine the physiology, right? So if you're working and you're starting to get stressed, what's happening is those stress hormones are building up, right? And it's what we call the fight-or-flight response. Those stress hormones are the same stress hormones that you would get if you're being chased by a lion. And what happens if you're chased by a lion? You run away, all right, and hopefully you get away. If you don't get away, there's no problem. But if you get away, (laughs) it's the running away that brings you back to homeostasis, right? It burns up the stress hormones. The stress hormones are there, to enable you to act. When we don't act through physical movement, those stress hormones then... um, So I'm going to get a bit technical here. Generally, your your fight or flight is involved with adrenaline and noradrenaline or norepinephrine as it's sometimes called. And then with longer stress the HPA axis kicks in in a hormone called cortisol, which is, is not good over a long period of time. So a, an adaptive stress response is that, that fight or flight, the maladaptive is more the cortisol. If you are not burning up that energy, the brain will start to release cortisol um, through the HPA axis, right? So having regular breaks where you just do 30 seconds to 60 seconds of vigorous activity actually burns up those stress hormones and then you sit down and do one to two minutes of that slow deep breathing drink a small glass of water and that is like taking your brain out and plugging it into the wall to get a recharge right okay the thing that i think plays into this what what and i say this to every business is can we ban 60 minute meetings and 30-minute meetings, right? If you think about how many people are just in back-to-back meetings, and you can't be in two places at once, right? And so they come to a meeting, they're late, they're stressed to the nines, everybody else is pissed off because they're late, and then, you know, the meeting doesn't start on time anyway. And the only reasonable answer that I've ever gotten is, that's what the calendar does. And So I uh, um, implore leaders to go, let's kill the 60 minute meeting, let's do 50 minutes and 25 minutes, because then you have some time to make that phone call, to shoot off that email, or to prepare for the next meeting, to read the agenda, to get there so that you're on time. Kill the 60 minute, 30 minute meetings.
1: And where should we order the kettlebells from? Anywhere, anywhere. <laughs> um, anywhere that tells yeah. kettlebells. Obviously, you're studying and you're very passionate about resilience, which is quite a common topic at the moment. I... Yes,
0: everyone's a resilience expert now, mate.
1: Do you have any advice for people that are overthinkers and may question their own performance or role?
0: Look, Many many people are overthinkers. I, I'm, I am constantly shocked when I in an audience and say, you know, who's the overthinkers? Give me a wee of how many hands actually go up. And the key thing is, is you, you can absolutely tie yourself up in knots in terms of overthinking, and and it can drag you down into this vortex. I think the thing to under to understand is that your brain will commit sales to whatever you're paying attention to. So when you're paying attention to these negative thoughts and that negative spiral, you're actually creating these neural networks in the brain. All right. What we need to understand from a neuroscience perspective is you need to be very careful at what you pay attention to about what you pay attention to, because your brain will commit neural networks and, and they become facilitated. They become what we call long term potentiated. And that means that neutral information is more likely to go down that pathway right so one thing that i always say to people when they're struggling with negative thoughts or negative emotions you know they they are, it, it's natural to have those things but we st- all have the ability to choose what we pay attention to right and and think of uh, i've stolen this analogy from my wife who who practices japanese psychology um is that they say that we are all in control of the flashlight of our attention and you just basically turn the flashlight somewhere else. And a great question to ask yourself is, are all these thoughts that I'm having helpful, all right? Because uh, it's not about, are they real? Is there evidence for them? It's just, are they helpful to me right now? And if they're not helpful, then you turn your attention to something that is helpful. And there's this beautiful term from Japanese psychology, arugamama, which means with things as they are, what needs to be done right now? So it's about getting out of your head and then getting into action like what needs to be done with things as they are.
1: It sounds like you might read a little bit of research.
0: Yeah, yeah, just just a little bit, just <laughs> a
1: little bit. If you could teach every CEO in Australia one key leadership lesson, what would it be?
0: I think it would be about the power of connection, of that, that human connection. I mean, the best leaders I had in my life were all very, very good at that human connection. And it would be to... St- spend a significant amount of time thinking about this question is, how do I make the people in my business feel like this business is a tribe? Because we all need to be a member of a tribe, right? We all have that need for social connection. And when you can build a culture where people feel like they're a member of a tribe, then they'll be much more highly engaged. Um, So that for me would be the big thing is how do I make this business a tribe of people who are all pulling in the same direction? It's not easy, but it is something that is is worthwhile um, investing time and effort into.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. Just to flip onto some of your other expertise, nutrition. What's the best diet? How should people lose weight at the moment? What's What's your advice there?
0: Anybody who tells you that there is one diet that we should all be eating is either mad or they're trying to sell you something or they're a member of a cult, right? <laughs> it's one of those three things. I think the biggest thing that is evidence based is that we should all minimize our intake of ultra processed foods there are l- literally nigh dozens and dozens of research papers showing how consumption of ultra-processed foods significantly increases your risk of all types of cancer, of all types of cardiovascular disease, not just heart disease, but stroke, um, cerebrovascular disease, all of those things. It actually shortens your telomeres, um, which protects your your DNA. People who have four serves or more of ultra-processed foods have a 62% increased risk of death by any cause of people who eat one serve of processed foods a day right so th- there is for me incontrovertible evidence that ultra processed foods are the things that are killing us and ultra processed foods a lot of people well, what is it it's food that is not real food so some stuff is obvious ice cream chocolate Cookies, baked goods, a lot of this sort of stuff, pies, pastries, sausage rolls, all of those sorts of things. I've got a simple guide, right? It's called the Low HI Diet. This this is one that is, is just good for everybody. And you can be a vegan, you can be a meat eater, and you can still follow this diet, right? And HI stands for Human Interference, right? I think the term was coined by a mate of Johnny Locko's, um, Dr. John Tickell. And I love this and I talk about this all the time. Basically, you look at a piece of food and if you can see that it has been alive recently, it's either grown out of the ground, off a bush, out of a tree, it's run around on four legs or it's swam, eat it. It's fine. But if you're looking at a piece of food and you're going, Mr. Krispy Kreme donut, I don't remember seeing you running around on four legs then it's in your treat food, right? I'm not saying never eat it. I'm saying 80-20 rule is the rule that I live by, right? This low HI, I think, is the is the best guide for people when it comes to nutrition. Now, I mentioned some of those things like pastry, sausage rolls, all of that stuff, but a lot of people are surprised to hear that supermarket breads are an ultra-processed food, right? Breakfast cereals, every single breakfast cereal out there other than rolled oats is an ultra-processed food, Right. If you think of the processing that goes through this. So ultra-processed foods is, is defined as stuff that is manufactured on an industrial scale that has things, additives, not, not just fat, salt, sugar, those things, but preservatives, emulsifiers, flavor enhancers, all of these things that we are just beginning to understand how they wreck our metabolism and our hormones. and And, and most of ultra-processed foods, are in the middle aisles of the supermarket. So just next time you, next time you're listeners, next time you go to the supermarket, just just have a look and see, because that actually works pretty well, right? All the fresh fruit, vegetables, um, dairy, and, and there's some shit dairy and there's some good dairy, but, and, and all the meat and stuff is around the outsides and
1: all the ultra processed shit is in the middle. What are your views on fasting based diets?
0: Look, I I am a fan of fasting. There's a number of different types of fasting and they work differently for different people. So I say to people, just experiment. You know, the one that I would encourage absolutely everybody to do as many nights a week as possible is to extend your night fast out to between 13 and 16 hours, right? There is, for me, pretty overwhelming evidence that that this is very good for you metabolically. Um, you know, you start off with 12 hours, then 13, then you can go out to 14. You get more benefits, right? And once you get, for most people, beyond around 13 hours, You'll start to create ketone bodies um, like beta-hydroxybutyrate that actually switch on about 300 protective genes. But one of the biggest thing about having at least a 12-hour night fast is it significantly reduces your cancer risk.
1: Why is that? What, what, what happens physiology? So at night... Your brain
0: at night um, will switch on a whole host of bodily repair mechanisms, right? So, you know, your cardiovascular system will repair itself. Your brain actually repairs itself at night, right? All your brain cells shrink. And they dump their waste products into this extracellular matrix, and it makes its way down the outside of your cardiovascular system and dumps into your nearest lymph node, right? That's how your brain gets rid of toxins when you're asleep, right? One of the many, many um, repair mechanisms that happen at night is your DNA repair enzymes. So these are little enzymes. Just think of it like this. They're running all the way throughout your body and brain. checking your cells, looking for cancerous or precancerous cells. And when they find them, they tag them. And these things called natural killer cells are released and they come and they they destroy the cancerous or precancerous cell, right? Which is pretty cool shit. What we now know and this is driven by your master clock in your brain. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It sits just kind of behind your eyes. We now know that your liver and your pancreas have got what we call peripheral clocks. And if you eat late at night, like a snack before you go to bed, that pancreas or you're drinking alcohol or whatever the liver and a pancreas will sense the nutrients they will turn on your metabolism and that switches off your DNA repair enzymes right so and Sachin Panda is the world leader in this area and and his advice is to at the minute and and he says it may may change as they get more evidence but is try to be done eating by 7 p.m and and try to fast for at least 13 hours, right? So that's 7 p.m. all the way through to 8 a.m., right? Nil by mouth other than water. Now, you're probably not going to do it every night of the week. I don't do it every night of the week because I like to drink, uh, have a few drinks uh, a few times a week. Um, But on the other nights, I make sure that I'm doing that minimum 12-hour fast. I'm quite comfortable on a 14-hour fast. 15 and 16 are a little bit of a stretch, but they're doable. And, and, you know, the first time somebody does this, They're going to think they're going to die, but um, I guarantee you, you won't die,
1: right? So somebody fasting, let's say 18 hours, 16 hours. Yes. So would they be eating two meals or three meals?
0: they can eat whatever right and and there is different bits of research and and we won't know for a while and and, and it's really really difficult to do well controlled nutritional studies right and and there's lots of individual variability but what we do know is that these ketone bodies that you produce this is what we call a, um a metabolic flexibility and one of the biggest issues of today is that we are in a constantly fed state and it's carbohydrate driven so our brains and our bodies will run-off glucose. Now, there, there are some people who used to say, and there's some people who still do say, that you need a constant source of carbohydrate. And actually, when you look at it, when you look at nutritional biochemistry, amino acids... Which, you know, protein is made up of amino acids is absolutely fundamental to life. Your body will start to break down and within days of not uh, taking in amino acids, right? Uh, fat is absolutely essential for life, for, for all of your cell membranes and all of this stuff. Carbohydrate is an entirely optional macronutrient. You can live for 30, 40 years without eating any carbohydrates. Now, will you be optimal? Probably not, but The fact that you can live for decades without any of it, but you couldn't live for a decade anywhere near it without amino acids from protein and fats tends to suggest, okay, well, where should the emphasis be, right? Let's just go back to nutritional biochemistry. Now, we do run off glucose, mostly in your brain will run off glucose. That is true. But in the absence of carbohydrate or in the absence of any food, we have this amazing ability to switch our metabolism, to flip the metabolic switch and turn into burning fat as a fuel source. And that's it, it that's turns fine. out that these key, these ketone bodies Actually, your brain does brilliantly on ketone bodies. People who have got Alzheimer's disease who go onto a ketogenic diet, their symptoms improve because those brain cells that can't use glucose and are, and are dying, um, can now, they now have an alternative fuel source, right? So what we know is having that metabolic flexibility, the ability to switch between burning glucose as the primary fuel in the body and burning fat is as a primary fuel is really really important, and we gain that metabolic flexibility just by increasing the
1: length of our night fast pa- past about twelve hours. I've definitely learned a lot from that, and I'm sure everybody else is.
0: There's other types of fasting. You know, there's the five two diet made famous by Michael Mosley, where you drop your calories right down two days a week. There's alternate fasting days where where you know you drop your calories right down maybe three days a week or something like that, and then there's the more extended. Three, four or five day water fasts, which do something completely different. You know, they they are doing widespread cellular autophagy, which is basically a, a metabolic spring clean at a cellular level. And and you know, if you're in your twenties, thirties, forties, you probably don't need to do that. But if you're like us and getting on a bit, and um, then you, you know, doing that four or five day water fast or a fasting mimicking diet once or twice a year is really, really good for for optimal cellular health, just to clean out all the shit at a cellular level.
1: I'd like to also understand a little bit around the theories of cold water therapy. And obviously living Bayside, there's a lot of people that uh, during winter, and I, I think I tried it during the COVID period, swimming every day through winter, but what's the real benefit of that?
0: When you expose yourself to cold water, whether that is through a cold shower or jumping in the bay in winter, both of which I'm a fan of, right? There's a number of things that, that happen. Straight away, noradrenaline and dopamine. Um, will be increased um, massively. Now, they're two very important neurotransmitters for mood and motivation and focused attentions. And that's why people who come out of the cold water think, oh, I feel fantastic. Um, you know, it's because of the increase in noradrenaline and dopamine, right? Uh, what also happens is, and noradrenaline is really important for upregulating the, the immune system, right? So it becomes more efficient, the immune system. And you, you see that, that these cold, water swimmers like john van wist like johnny Locco the guys who do it routinely and when they study them all around the world they have better cardiovascular function they have better immune function and they live longer than aged matched controlled groups who do similar amounts of exercise but not in the cold right so when you get into the cold As soon as that cold water hits your skin, there are nerve cells just under your skin that send signals to your brain and your brain kicks in this whole Coordinated response to combat the cold, right? Driven largely by this norepinephrine, this, this, this stress hormone that is actually good for your immune system. Your immune system upregulates your antioxidant enzyme system, upregulates and um, your cardiovascular system, upregulates as well. And and your body just switches on this whole coordinated response to fight the cold and some emerging evidence. suggest that it could be really good for autoimmune conditions because autoimmune conditions are very expensive to run metabolically. And so when you then get into the cold, your brain has to choose which expensive system am I going to run here? This autoimmune program that I'm running or am I going to prioritize survival? And it will prioritize survival every day of the week, right? So watch this space for for more and more research coming out about the benefits of regular cold exposure for autoimmune conditions, as well as general health for both your body and your brain as well.
1: Very, very enlightening. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Professor Paul Taylor, thank you very much for coming along. love the chat. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. I am Johnny Locko's honorary professor, I think. uh,
1: Thanks for listening to the Building Teams podcast. For more information about Matt and Nun Media, visit nunmedia.com.au. Follow the show for future episodes and leaving a review or rating helps others find the podcast.